Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 14th, lunchtime on the West Coast of the United States. I was... Uh, remind the viewers and listeners of the time and date um, on every show. We've done more than 500 shows, but I'm beginning to wonder what the point of that is. After all, as Faulkner so famously said, uh, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past, so what's the point of thinking about the present? Uh, Faulkner was, of course, um, talking about the American South, but he might have been talking about Russia. In fact, I think in a peculiar way, there's lots of similarities between the history of the American South and the history of Russia. Lots of what's-ifs, lots of tragedies, lots of, um, lots of contemporary relevance, uh, the past being alive. I was reminded of the, of the, uh, the, the relevance of history um, and the fact that the past never really dies. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Kazakhstan giving a speech. I went to a place called Nur Sultan, which is a kind of post-Soviet dystopian, weird architectural uh, mishmash. And while I was there, I, I visited uh, the gulag or the ex-gulag in Alzheimer, just outside the city. It reminded me, of course, of the tragedy of Russian history the catastrophe of Bolshevism and of Stalinism. Uh, and when um, Faulkner famously said the past isn't dead, it isn't even past, he might have been talking, as I said, about Russian history. Um, yesterday, I interviewed Max Chafkin about the Silicon Valley investor Peter Thiel. And somehow we got on to Lenin and Lenin and, uh, Lenin and Thiel's love of chess and their similar love of power. Yes, they also interviewed Fiona Hill, who's been very much in the news. And we talked about the similarity of Russian and American and indeed British history in terms of decline. Uh, today, we're back on Russian history. Uh, this time, we're talking real history. Uh, uh, the book that we're discussing is to break Russia's chains by a very distinguished professor or ex-professor of uh, Russian literature and history, uh, Vladimir Alexandrov. He used to teach at both Harvard and Yale. And he's written this remarkable biography uh, of a man called Boris uh, Savinkov, who uh, somehow captures all the complexity and tragedy and perhaps potential of Russian history. So it's, it's a big book and a wonderfully written book. And I'm thrilled uh, that uh, uh, that uh, Vladimir is with us to talk about uh, his new book. Uh, Vladimir, that was quite an introduction. I apologize. Um, when it comes to Faulkner and the past not being dead, is that particularly relevant to the history of Russia or the lack of history of Russia? Uh, hi, Andrew. Yes, I think it is. I mean, we know that um, for ill or good, uh, Putin is constantly trying to connect 
various periods in the Russian historical past to the present. Uh, people keep talking about what the role of Stalin was, uh, the various anniversaries of the Bolshevik Revolution are, are celebrated very differently now in Russia than they used to be. The First World War is somehow given more prominence than it was under the Soviets. So I think it's a, a constant touchstone for the political leadership. Um, and because of that, it's probably more of a preoccupation of the average person than it might otherwise be. This book, To Break Russia's Train, uh, not trains, chains, um, is a serious undertaking, uh, Vladimir. You, we, we talked a little bit before, you said it's taken you six or seven years to research and write. Why did you choose to invest so much time and intellectual energy on a book about Boris Savinkov, who some scholars of, of Russian history will be familiar with, but most people won't. What is it about Savinkov that you think is so important to talk about today? There are several things. I mean, the first thing that drew me to him was his incredibly adventurous life, uh, his being active in all of the events in the first two decades of the 20th century in Russia. His life runs like a red line literally through all of them. And since those events all preceded or constituted or followed the Russian Revolution, which was arguably the most important catalyst of world history in the 20th century, the adventures that he had were intimately tied with particularly important events. So the first thing was that it's a, it's a very good story, his life, but it's a story that is connected to very important events the consequences of which we are still living with today. Another aspect of his life that struck me, and this is related to the first uh, couple of points I just made, was uh, his grit. I mean, grit has become uh, a kind of a more popular term in recent years, implying determination, commitment, despite all kinds of obstacles. And uh, Savinkov's commitment was with regard to freedom, which is a particularly fraught issue in Russian history. Russia's history is long, but Russia has known very few periods of freedom. Prior to 1917, as you know, it was an absolute monarchy after the imperial regime fell. In March of 1917, there was a roughly eight month long period uh, of a kind of a provisional government when there was a fair amount of chaos and a lot of potential for freedom as well. And then what happened after the Bolshevik coup d'etat in November of 1917, again, as we all know, was a long uh, dark night of uh, Soviet tyranny. And then now followed by Putin's authoritarianism. So uh, the significance of Savinkov is that he fought for freedom all of his life, from when he was a student in St. Petersburg in his 20s, uh, during the imperial period of Russian history, when he was a revolutionary terrorist, a paradoxically moral one, I might add, which is something that might be worth talking about. Well, all terrorists claim to be moral, don't they? 
Well, uh, I think that the argument for the morality of Savinkov and his ilk uh, probably holds more water in a way that I can actually describe when, if you if you want, at some point. Well, we can we can get into that. Um, I'm I'm curious though, uh, Vladimir, as to your choice of words when it comes to uh, Savinkov. As you say, he's a fascinating character, remarkable character. You couldn't make this stuff up. A uh, Russian aristocrat was involved in the assassination of the event that resulted in the revolution of 1905, was involved in the February revolution of 1917, then became a minister in the provisional government, then was thrown out because of his association with the counter-revolution, then set up the Union for the Defense of the Motherland and Freedom in the Civil War to fight the Bolsheviks and eventually executed by the Bolsheviks. But... If you were to choose, when I was growing up, when I used to study Russian history, I was very influenced by Richard Pipe's two-volume book on Peter Struve. I think it was liberal on the left and liberal on the right. Struve seems to me to be a liberal struggling with the issue of freedom. Aren't there better words to describe? I'm not necessarily criticizing Savinkov, but aren't there better words? Passion? perhaps violence of one kind or another? Well, he certainly had a strong romantic streak in him, which manifested itself in his passionate commitments. But ideologically, he subscribed during his active years to the political ideology of the Socialist Revolutionary Party in Russia. And people who haven't studied the period normally think that the primary revolutionary group radical revolutionary group was the Bolsheviks. Right. Were These were the SR, they were known as the SRs, the agrarian socialists. But were they committed to freedom? Oh, absolutely. Uh, they stood for various very appealing principles, including a republic, a democratic republic for Russia, universal suffrage. Very notably, given what's been going on in the 20th century, they stood for the independence of and self-determination of all the peoples who have been subjects of the Russian Empire. In other words, Poland, Ukraine, Finland, the Baltic Republics, all of them were supposed to be independent countries, according to the uh, socialist revolutionaries. Moreover, the socialist revolutionaries were not Marxists. They did not believe in class warfare. As you know, the Bolshevik Marxists saw one's socioeconomic background being as indelible a trait in somebody's um, status in society as race is, according to racists, like we have in the United States now. Uh, the one distinguishing trait of the socialist revolutionaries that gives people pause, rightly so, is that in addition to agitating among the peasants, and you're right to say that they were agrarian populists, the SRs and the Russian peasantry, made up something like 80% of the Russian population at the beginning of the 20th century. So their focus on the peasantry was definitely warranted. But the other um, feature of their political and practical uh, tactics was something they called central terror. They believed in the surgically precise assassination of leading figures in the imperial regime. And this is actually where the idea of a uniquely moral kind of terror emerged. 
Um, I can say a few words about that if you'd like. Uh, he uh, sorry, he was uh, involved in the assassination of um, the director, uh, that the minute the, the 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 Russian Minister of the Interior in 1904, von Plev, who, as as you say in the book, sparked the in some ways the 1905 revolution. Um, are you suggesting then that there is such a thing as moral terror? Let me let me say two things about that. I, I try to approach this as an historian, so I'm describing what happened. I'm obviously not advocating the form of terrorism that Savinkov and Izil practiced. But let me give you uh, perhaps the most striking example of this kind of paradoxically moral terrorism that Savinkov and his team practiced. In 1905, they targeted Grand Duke Sergei, who was the Tsar's uncle, and the reviled um, governor general of Moscow for various sins that were laid at his feet. When the time for the attack with a bomb uh, approached, the bomb thrower, who was not Savinkov, Savinkov directed the operation, was nearby, was standing at a building near Red Square. The building is still there. Seeing the Grand Duke's carriage at night, the terrorist with the bomb ran toward it, got to within a couple of feet of it enough close enough so that he could see inside and saw that the grand duke was in it but next to him was a woman and across from them were two children and the terrorist dropped his arm and watched the carriage roll away toward the bolshoi theater which is where it was heading now miraculously for this entire terrorist operation there were no guards nearby and nobody noticed him so the terrorist goes into Alexander Garden, which runs along the wall of the Kremlin 100 meters away, to talk to Savinkov about this and to consult with him. And they both agree that it would have been immoral to try to assassinate the Grand Duke because there would have been innocents who would have died in the attack. This is perhaps the most striking example of their use of morality, paradoxically, in relation to an assassination. But it wasn't the only one. All of the terrorists that Savinkov worked with uh, agonized over the fact that they felt compelled to kill another human being. Uh, they all thought that the possibility that they would be either arrested for their planned crime or for the crime that they carried out and executed, or the fact that they would actually die during the attack itself was justified punishment for taking another life, even though they believed it was necessary to do it for the good of the Russian people. Uh, there were innocent victims at times. The coachman of the Grand Duke died as a result of his wounds when two days later, the terrorists successfully blew the Grand Duke up in the Kremlin itself, which was open to the public in those days. But uh, that is a very striking difference, it seems to me, from the kind of terrorism we know all too well today, when it's not the politicians or the generals who are responsible more directly for the ills that the terrorists are trying to combat, it's innocence, somewhere perhaps even unrelated to where the crimes were committed, who are killed doing whatever they happen to be doing 
chosen at random and the more victims, the better. So in this well, case- I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I necessarily buy this argument, the idea that somehow the, the, the socialist revolutionary terrorists were better than Al-Qaeda because they didn't indiscriminately kill doesn't mean that you can necessarily justify what they did. And it, it sounds to me in some ways as if what you're talking about is almost like a, a chapter out of Conrad's secret agent, this slightly absurd tales of, of early 20th century terrorism. Um, l- let me ask you about, um, sorry, let me, let me ask you about um, this man, um, uh, uh, Savinkov. What does he tell us about the state of the Russian aristocracy at the end of the 19th century? I know he doesn't necessarily represent everyone, but can we can we take some something from that in terms of making sense of the 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 intellectual, moral, cultural condition of 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 the of the Russian ruling class? Because he was from that ruling class. His father his father was a um, a judge in Poland, part of the Russian Empire. I think calling him a member of the ruling class is overstating the case. I think he was a member of a of a privileged estate in Imperial Russia, but the fact that he was born a nobleman, a very minor one, certainly doesn't put him into the same class as uh, the members of the imperial family or the higher aristocracy who were actually involved in government policy. Um, I I said that the Socialist Revolutionary Party was very important during the first, let's say, 15, 17 years of the 20th century. Of the radical parties that existed in Russia, they were the most popular uh, and the most influential. Uh, There were lots of people with Savinkov's background, people who were educated, people who came from a privileged background, but who are not necessarily members of the ruling elite who sympathized with the socialist revolutionaries and gave them money. So uh, it tells you that there was a strong, uh, a strong radical streak in some members of, let's call them the intelligentsia in pre-revolutionary Russia. Uh, People who sympathized with the socialist revolutionaries, but would not have gone as far as to support uh, and advocate for the Bolsheviks with their Marxist approach to politics and to history. There were, of course, much more moderate uh, parties as well. The cadets, the constitutional Democrats, were also very influential. They were hoping not for a revolutionary change in Russia, catalyzed by surgical assassinations, but for an evolutionary one. Uh, People like Savinkov, because they didn't think that the regime would change quickly enough, or as Boris Savinkov himself uh, showed, because they were too passionate and didn't have the personality or the patience to wait for change, wanted to take things into their own hands. The socialist revolutionaries um, would have uh, won the power struggle in Russia had Lenin not scattered the Constituent Assembly in early 1918. Uh, What I'm talking about here is that Uh, During the provisional government, which ran from March of 1917 through November, when it was overthrown by the Bolsheviks, the aim of the provisional government was to bring the country to a state where there could be a free election 
by representatives, duly chosen by the different classes of people, to decide on what kind of a government Russia would have. Even after the Bolsheviks ostensibly or de facto seized power in November, the Constituent Assembly still met early in 1918. And Lenin knew, and this is in the historical record, that the socialist revolutionaries had the majority of votes. If the election had been allowed to proceed, the socialist revolutionaries would have won and would have been in the position of determining what kind of a government Russia would have. Bolsheviks, Lenin and the Bolsheviks saw what was coming. He had his men scatter the constituent assembly at gunpoint. As a result of, and of course, there was a, a rationalization by the Bolsheviks that this constituent assembly was not truly representative of the range of opinions uh, of the Russian people and of their political stances. But it was only because of a kind of a second coup in early 1918 that the Bolsheviks actually were able to seize power in the way they did. Vladimir, so, let's go back to the story of um, Savinkov, especially in 1917. Uh, so he was a socialist revolutionary. He was involved in the assassination in 1904, then in the revolution of 1905. And then in the February Revolution, which overthrew the monarchy and created um, the provisional government, he was for a while a minister in that government. Tell me about what he did and, and what happened to him as a minister in the provisional government uh, well, of the February Revolution. And sure, it's an, it's an amazing trajectory because just prior to this, he had been an indigent war correspondent in France writing about how the war was going on the Western Front for Russian newspapers and barely making enough to make ends meet. When the imperial regime fell, uh, he was in effect amnestied because the new regime did not see him as a revolutionary criminal. He came back and he immediately threw himself into supporting the war effort. He thought it was unconscionable to conduct revolutionary activity when Russia was imperiled by a German victory, which is what he feared. He thought that if the Germans won the war in the East, that they would dismantle all of the relative freedoms that the February Revolution had won for Russia. As a result of this, he became a commissar on the Russian front. His job was to agitate to keep the troops fighting. The Russian armies were falling apart by that time. There were countless desertions. The Bolsheviks were agitating for the Russians to lay down their arms. He came to the attention of the prime minister, a socialist revolutionary, by the way, whose name was Alexander Kerensky. And Kerensky appointed Savinkov to be the acting minister of war, preserving the position of minister for himself, Kerensky did. But in effect, Savinkov was in charge of the war ministry. And his goal remained the same to try to get the Russian troops to rally, to fight against the Germans and to prevent their taking over Russia, which they were slowly doing. Even Petrograd, as the city was then called, was already being bombarded from the air by uh, German far range airplanes. Now, the center was not holding in the provisional government. I don't know if there ever was a center. Was there a provisional government? Well, it only lasted I mean, six months. There was a government. 
And the government could have been more forceful in how it behaved and how it carried out any kind of activity. Uh, but Kerensky uh, was a vacillating individual who didn't believe, for example, that the uh, Marxist Bolsheviks represented a real threat to him. He thought that they were kind of errant uh, uh, revolutionaries like himself, not as radical as they turned out to be. Uh, Savinkov tried to push Kerensky into a more aggressive action. For example, the provisional government abolished the death penalty at the front for desertion. All of the other fighting countries, whether the Central Powers or the Entente, had the death penalty. It was a feature of war. Savinkov insisted that it be reinstated to try to reinstate discipline. And it was reinstated and then canceled. This is an example of Kerensky's kind of vacillation. Savinkov wanted a strong military commander to be put in charge of all the forces. And the person with whom he allied himself was a war hero, General Lavar Kornilov, who was a popular general with the troops and who also believed that his task was to bring the war against the Germans to victory so that then the Russian people would be free via a constituent assembly to choose the form of government that they wanted. He was not, Kornilov was not a monarchist. Uh, he was not a proto-fascist. He was a democratically inclined uh, professional soldier who came from a very, a very simple and humble peasant background himself. So Savinkov tried to ally himself with Kornilov and to force the prime minister's hand. And unfortunately, because of Savinkov's very principled nature, this entire matter, which become, became known as, as the, the Kornilov affair. The, Korn the Kornilov affair, which is, uh, to be fair, uh, Vladimir, it's enormously controversial amongst historians. You're taking one view, but many people would argue otherwise. And it's also important, I think, to note for listeners and viewers that the Bolsheviks, uh, were, were were certainly not the only people in Russia to want to pull out of the war. The war was in, enormously unpopular in Russia, more unpopular in Russia than it was probably anywhere else because the Russian army was so uh, badly equipped. But that's another issue. Uh, so, well, so it's an, it's an important one. And Savinkov, one of Savinkov's many mistakes was his insistence on conducting the war to victory because that is something that lost the socialist revolutionaries and him a lot of support. The rank and file soldiers and most of the pop civilian population did not want the war to continue and were in favor of the Bolshevik pulling out of it. So that's quite true. So here we have a guy, he, as you say, uh, a journalist, an idealist, a romantic, but a man who flirted with terrorism and violence who became the minister of war in the provisional government and then became involved with a coup to overthrow, a military coup to overthrow the provisional government known as the Kornilov affair. So he left the government. And then what? Then what becomes of um, Savinkov as the Bolsheviks take power in, uh, in, in October 1917? We're talking about probably the most consequential six months of the 20th century in the period between... Uh, February and October 1917, when the Kerensky government 
failed, the Kornilov coup undermined the government, and then the Bolsheviks staged their own coup. What becomes of Savinkov in all this? But let me let me just say first that you mentioned Richard Pipes and his books on Struve. Uh, Richard Pipes, I think, uh, still has written the best single history of the Russian Revolution. Uh, yeah, very, I agree. A very solid volume. And if you follow him and look at the details of the historical record, the so-called Kornilov coup attempt was mostly an invention by the Bolsheviks and by other historical um, radical participants of the time. There really was no coup. Uh, I, there's not time enough to go into all Yeah, this. well, anyway, let, let's, uh, you know, this is, this is inside the Beltway stuff, I think, amongst Russian historians. And your book is about, is a biography of this guy, Savinkov. So then he goes off and uh, forms the union, after the Bolshevik seizure of power, their own coup, successful one in contrast to whatever the Kornilov attempt on power was, was. He creates the union for the defense of the motherland and freedom and becomes a commander in the civil war. Is that fair? Yes. Now, uh, we normally think of the Russian civil war as being between the whites and the reds. The whites were frequently politically reactionary. Some of them were monarchists. Savinkov tried to join them very late in 1917 in the south of Russia. They rebuffed him. They didn't want to have anything to do with somebody who had dared to raise his hand against the imperial system and who was implicated in their view in a uh, policies during the provisional government that undermine the army. So Savinkov left. He went to Moscow and he organized an underground army of his own, which was, as he took great pride in stressing, not marked politically. He would take anybody who would be willing to fight for a handful of principles, one of which was we're fighting to let the Russians participate in the... um, constituent assembly that would be coming. So he organized um, uh, some 5,000 men in Moscow. He coordinated with the French. The French and the British um, were very much interested in trying to thwart the successful... uh, And this is his association with Winston Churchill, right? It begins not long after that, but not exactly at this moment. In other words, the French had promised Savinkov that they would invade from the north, there are all kinds of allied landings on the periphery of Russia, in the south, in the north, on the Pacific coast. The French never followed up on their promise, and Savinkov's uh, uprising in a string of small towns uh, to the north and to the east of Moscow uh, failed. As a so everything, of the- uh, uh, Vladimir, everything Savinkov, I, I take the fact that it was romantic and a remarkable man and dashing and very handsome, women loved him, a brilliant writer. He could have stepped out of a novel, a 19th century novel. But everything he did failed. Everything. What does that tell us about him? It tells us that he was a quixotic figure. Who? I mean, you choose that word, the, the quixotic. Uh, that's being kind, isn't it? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because the thing is that... Um, Don Quixote is trying to reconstruct something that is completely impossible. But Savinkov was constantly going through moments in Russian history 
which could have swerved in completely unpredictable directions. The French did uh, land an army of nearly 70,000 troops uh, in Odessa in the south on the Black Sea. Had the French not lost their will and decided to let their army march north in support of the whites, the Bolsheviks might have lost. Had the French lived up to their promise to invade from and the had north, had they lost, what if? I'm going to give you the the historian's dream, Vladimir. What if? What if Savinkov had been successful? What if he'd won the civil war? What if his Union for the Defense of the Motherland and Freedom had come to power, then what? What would have the history of the 20th century have been like? You know, it could have gone in two very different directions because given Savinkov's romantic streak and willfulness, there was the potential for a Napoleonic move. Napoleon was born out of the chaos of the French Revolution, which was supposed to get rid of a strong central figure, but there was Napoleon instituting, uh, constituting an empire. There was potential for this in Savinkov as well because of his belief in himself and because of his denigration of the kind of vacillation and messy politics that is typical of participatory democracy. Participatory democracy, he was tired of that. On the other hand, Savinkov showed his principles very dramatically on several occasions in his life in defense of a democratic republic for Russia. He did things that harmed himself in order to uphold those principles. So if the socialist revolutionaries had won the election that they were supposed to win in early 1918, and Savinkov had taken part in that, we could have seen instead of the Bolsheviks with all of the terror that they instituted, something much more humane and principled. And what about the third alternative? Um, leaving aside the, the Napoleonic scenario or the democratic one, we know in Germany at this time, a new party was being formed. They called themselves the National Socialists. Uh, the social revolutionaries had a cult of the Russian peasant. Uh, they were Slavophiles. What conceivably could have been the possibility had a man like Savinkov come to power of a Russian form of fascism, of ethnic fascism. It's a, a very appropriate point that you're raising because in the early 1920s, Savinkov became fascinated with Mussolini in the same way that lots of other people were uh, in established democracies from the United States to Britain. I mean, we also have to understand that this is before Mussolini showed himself uh, to be what he really was. It wasn't until later. Well, that, to, to be well, fair, Vladimir, there were a lot of people who were warning about Mussolini's cult of violence. He it, certainly there was there was nothing particularly attractive about him to many people. He he's not attractive to me, but uh, Roosevelt admired what he was doing. Other American politicians admired him. There were Zionists I read who admired what Mussolini was doing because. There was not a whiff of anti-Semitism in his activity early on. But yes, he took power through a show of force, his notorious march on Rome, and this appealed to Savinkov. So it is possible that Savinkov might have followed the sort of 
Napoleonic path in the direction of fascism. Because he had begun, as he participated in the political life of Russia more and more after he returned in 1917, to become disenchanted with the kind of messy, endless discussions and irresolution that he saw as being a feature of a democratic country. So to be fair, it is possible that the lure of fascism, of national socialism with a focus on the peasantry could have seduced him. Finally, uh, and this is great stuff. I'm really loving this, um, Vladimir, because uh, this what if historical discussion is, 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 is fascinating. It would have changed everything. We probably wouldn't be here talking to one another had Savinkov come to power. Um, what does his story tell us about the state of the American intelligentsia today? There's lots of comparisons with 19th century Russia, that aristocracy, and the anger, the unrest amongst young Americans today. What is the, what's the moral lesson of, of your biography of, of Boris Sav, Savinkov for the kinds of kids you used to teach at Yale or Harvard? I know you're now retired. A moral lesson from Savinkov. I think there are several things one would have to say. I mean, his life um, illustrates that a lot of what is supposedly common knowledge about Russia is inaccurate and is oversimplified. So simply by reading about a fascinating man, a conflicted man, a self-contradictory... Well, but but my, my, my question was, this connection between a sense of the good, of morality, of decency, and violence, of reaction, more and more intellectuals, particularly on the left, but also on the right of, in America, are attracted to violence. Is there something about Savinkov that should warn us about the dangers of that violence? As I said, my model of, of what if, had Peter Struve come to power in Russia, then things might have been quite different. That probably wouldn't have been very realistic. But is Savinkov a warning about the, the cult of virtue, the cult of virtue that can so often lead to making violence legitimate, a cult of terrorism, moral terrorism at least? He, I think he is. Uh, let me uh, illustrate this by going back to uh, an event that has all kinds of resonance with um, Savinkov as well as the issue you're raising. It's the assassination in 1881 of Emperor Alexander II by a radical party called the People's Will, who were the direct predecessors of Savinkov and the SRs. They assassinated the reformist Emperor Alexander II, who among other things had freed the serfs in 1861, simply by imperial decree, on the day that he was traveling to sign into law a document that would establish the first feeble, but still the first Russian parliament. And the horrific nature of the assassination of this liberalizing emperor caused a period of reaction to set in that lasted 25 years. It wasn't until 1905 that Nicholas II finally, because of the pressures upon him, created the Duma, uh, a quasi-parliament. So my point here is that 
the violence that Savinkov, for reasons that he believed in, practiced, may have aggravated the situation that he was trying to change. Perhaps a less violent, gradualist approach that would not have provoked the regime because it becomes a kind of a vicious circle. The radicals use violence, the imperial regime strikes back, more violence, more striking back, things get worse. Perhaps this kind of romantic commitment to an individual heroically assassinating a leading figure caused more harm than good in the end. So I said at the outset that I'm not advocating, uh, obviously, any form of terrorism, even the paradoxical moral kind that Savinkov practiced. And one of the practical reasons why is because it was an act, uh, a way of behaving that seemed to have escalated the problems that Russia was beset by rather than solve them. Who predicted, uh, and, and I want a very sharp answer here because we've got to end, Vladimir, we're going over, but this is fascinating stuff. Who got the future right? Was it Turgenev in his Fathers and Sons or was it Dostoevsky in Notes from the Underground? Who, who understood the condition of Russia best? Oh, the it was great Dosto Russian writers. It was Dostoevsky, and it was actually in The Devils, his novel in which he has a character predict exactly what happened when the Bolsheviks took power, that they ostensibly wanted complete freedom for the people and instituted a system that subjugated them into a new form of slavery. Dostoevsky knew. He knew decades before it happened. Uh, Struve knew as well, but Dostoevsky knew it better. Uh... This is great stuff, Vladimir. We haven't even talked about religion, which is another subject. Maybe we'll get you back on the show to talk about that. Certainly, I think we began with, uh, with Faulkner's quote that the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. And I think this conversation has proved that. Um, Vladimir, as I said, your book is meticulous. It's passionate. I mean, you're clearly very sympathetic to Savinkov. But you understand, I think, in some ways, that my kind of critique. So it's it's a wonderful book, and it's a it's it's a tremendous follow up to your your big hit from 2013, The Black Russian, which ironically enough is about um, an African American entrepreneur from Mississippi, speaking of Faulkner, who goes to Russia uh, to make his fortune. What else should people be reading? That they should certainly read The Black Russian in addition to to break Russian chains. What else should people be reading, uh, uh, Vladimir, to make them wiser about history? Um, I read a couple of recently released books that I enjoyed very much that I'm happy to mention. Uh, one is by David Stewart. Uh, it's the political, it's George Washington, the political rise of America's founding father. And there are lots of biographies of Washington I'm not an American historian, but I'm interested in this. And I think that David Stewart really makes an excellent case for describing how Washington became the man that he did. And then from a very different uh, field of history, I liked very much Giles Milton's checkmate in Berlin about the occupation and division of that capital city at the end of the Second War and how the seeds of the Cold War were laid by the various conflicts that developed among the four powers that took over the city. So those are two books that appeared very recently that are very good reads 
and very illuminating, I thought, which I'm happy to recommend. Well, that was uh, quite a show, Vladimir. Your new book, To Break Russia's Chains, is, is fascinating, full of controversy. It shows that the past isn't dead because we can argue so passionately about the what-ifs and the morality of, 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 of remarkable characters uh, like, like the figure in uh, your, your biography, Savinkov. Congratulations on the book and congratulations on, on, on making your case so forcibly. I really appreciate it, Vladimir. Keep well and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed it. I like your questions. I like your pushback. <laughs>